You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Take care of COVID and you take care of the economy. We've heard that from many of our economists. Will we pay the price for not stepping up with stronger messaging about the latest variant? This morning, we talked to Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics about being in record COVID territory and how that may trip up our economic recovery. I would have thought at 1,000 to 2,000 new daily cases, more muscular non-pharmaceutical intervention would be required. I mean, I understand the advocacy for vaccination and boosters and and so-called personal responsibility, but we're past that, right? We're way past. You get vaccinated today, you're not covered till the end of January earliest. So what's happening right now is all momentum. It's all community spread. It's spreading from the community to the tourists. And that's not a great message to be having to manage if, in fact, there's even an attempt to manage that message because it's already broadcasting through social media and word of mouth. So, yeah, I I think, you know, the emphasis was last week, a little bit surprisingly, at least on Oahu, was party on, dude, and uh, personal responsibility. And, And for a lot of people... You tell them this is about personal responsibility, and that's a quote. That's the official guidance. This is about personal responsibility. Uh, that For many people, that message is, you know, let's go clubbing. And so, I, as I say, I, I think a, a somewhat more muscular response, well, for example, emphasizing mask wearing universally and re- reemphasizing social distancing. Remember those quaint days. And... Um, you know, you don't have to get all in lockdown mode to do something that's short of a lockdown and still, you know, rigorously um, encouraging distancing and small gatherings, if at all. I mean, one way of approaching this would have been, hey, it's Christmas vacation. Stay home for a week, which would probably do it at the speed Omicron is moving. If everybody just stayed home for a week, it would probably be pretty effective at least temporarily and give you some breathing room and it's winter break man nobody's working anyway or you know half the state and county workers aren't working all the schools are out so anyway i'm just saying we're going to end up paying for a more cavalier response in the face of the worst covid infection wave that hawaii's had yet we're not one of these states that let COVID run amok last year. So we don't have a bunch of built-up immunity. Like you see these statistics from South Africa where Omicron doesn't seem to be as virulent and they only have 30 or 40% vaccination. Well, that's because COVID was so widespread that they've built up herd immunity. You know, there's two ways to do that. One is by getting the disease and the other is by getting vaccinated. And, you know, their statistics are helping Omicron, which probably is less virulent you know, to look like less of a risk to the hospital system and so on because of widespread infection. But widespread infection is not a strategy. Um, it's a failure of a strategy. And Hawaii got through last year pre-vaccination because it had rigorous non-pharmaceutical interventions. This year we lifted them and we're just a sitting duck at Christmas for everybody gathering, singing carols at Christmas Eve church service and gathering for a big meal with the extended family and friends over the weekend. And those numbers, you think 2,000 cases a day? Right now we've got a seven-day moving average of 1,200 cases per day on Oahu. Dude, that'll be 2,000 within a few days. Wait till you get to the real testing days. You know, I mean, the weekend's always kind of sketchy, but wait till you get to the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday test results rolling out later this week. So anyway, you know, managing it and then managing the signal that's going to be sent from our failure to manage. I mean, they canceled a bowl game. <laughs> that's how bad it is. It's right. so bad, they canceled a bowl game. Right, they so everybody knows that right now Hawaii's not a great place to be unless you want to the, get COVID. The, the game didn't play on ESPN, the announcement that they canceled the game because the COVID played on ESPN. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. So, you know... You would have liked to have seen a stronger message go out amongst our residents about staying put. But you also looked at mobility numbers in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, we track, um, there are all these real-time data. You can go to um, tracktherecovery.org and pull up Hawaii data from uh, smartphone uh, utilization. So typically what you see in these data is that the, the political leaders, you know, they have to respond to a spectrum of views about um, policy. Uh, some people think that uh, that we can just kind of wing it, and other people think that more draconian interventions are required. And so, the, and, and I understand it's a democracy. Politicians have to sort of find the median, you know, viewpoint. But what you see in behavior is that the people who are more risk averse don't work, and they stop going to grocery stores, and they stop going to restaurants, and they stop going out to recreational amenities. And in each of the prior waves, the the, the one associated with the lockdown in the spring of 2020, and then in the Honolulu lockdown late in the summer, basically September of last year, and then during the winter wave, which was largely absent here in Hawaii. But in each of those cases, you see behavior measured by, you know, Google knows where your smartphone in is and how long it is uh, there, so that you can see behavior shifting well before the, the waves explode. And in this case, what we've seen is, um, and, and for example, they've stayed permanently lower. So the amount of time people spend in the grocery store or in restaurants uh, is down, you know, 5, 10, 15 percent from pre-COVID levels. But it, it cycles in inverted use. It goes back up, it recovers, and then as the next wave approaches, prior to the wave, prior to the policy interventions, people are, are changing their behavior in the other direction and, you know, hiding out a little. And where we've seen that in the last week, we only have data through last weekend, not, I mean, the weekend before Christmas. Um, so it's almost real time. And I'm sure that if you go to tractiverecovery.org tomorrow, it'll all be updated through Christmas Day or Christmas Eve because everybody went home for the weekend. Um, park use is down about 25% from the um, pre-COVID level, but it's down from about, so it was, it's minus 25% today, but it was minus 15%, say, in the early July, right, 4th of July, just before the Delta wave, when people were thinking, oh, recovery's here, and the governor and the LG were arguing about whether we should still wear masks indoor, right? There was that brief moment in the sunshine where President Biden said, hey, maybe this is done. Um, well, here we are, and, and people are already starting to vote with their feet, stay away from recreational areas. And um, uh, they spent more time, obviously, in stores because of the seasonal increase and because the guidance they were getting was that it's okay to go shopping. But uh, again, public leaders have to balance these economic concerns, right? You know, again, the cost of the opportunity cost of shutting down businesses uh, against the public health costs, which is the businesses are going to do badly if everybody gets sick and, and hides out in their cave. And we're sort of on the cusp of something. I think I'm concerned we're on the cusp of everybody voluntarily having to pull back because of the nature of the Omicron wave and a relatively quiet January for the economy. In the, in the same way we saw an endogenous, right, a, a sort of natural behavioral reaction to the Delta wave late in the summer. We'll go through the same thing next month. And, you know, knock on wood, we'll see how the hospitalizations go. Omicron seems to be associated with lower hospitalization, but that may be an artifact of the degree of vaccination that is present in places like Scotland and England, where recent, you know, metadata studies have been published to suggest hospitalization may be less of a concern this time around. Again, knock on wood. I mean, right. wishes were horses, right? Well, you know, everybody was looking toward January in the first quarter, and hopefully the return of the international uh, travelers market, particularly Japan. But, you know, we're starting to see some positive cases, of, uh, including one from Japan uh, from last week. They were here getting ready to return home, and they tested positive for COVID. So, yeah, we are no longer one of the safest destinations if you look at our positivity rate. Yeah, ironically, we were last Christmas and we had really rigorous um, screening protocols. We still do. Safe Travels program is a really good idea. <laughs> and, of course, we just went and did it. Um, but you're right. Now, you know, there's, it's, 
inevitable, certainly for Oahu. I mean, I'm, I'm looking, my calculation is that the moving average daily case rate on Oahu is about 1,200. It'll be 1,500 today or tomorrow. It'll be 1,800 midweek, later in the week. Oahu will be, if things keep going, I mean, they could miraculously reverse course, but I'm thinking because everybody got together the last three days, by next weekend, it's just going to be, I think the technical term is gnarly, dude. Well, the neighbor islands aren't quite there, but that's not a message you want. You know, that's, you can't control that message. 2,000, I mean, I'm talking 2,000 cases per million person. I'm talking about normalized case counts. I'm not talking about Hawaii's a small place. And it's 2,000 cases per million persons that we had in Hawaii over the weekend. So, like, <laughs> recently concluded weekend. And we've and got the New Year's coming up. Gathering. We've got the huh? New Year's holiday coming up. New Year's up. is coming. Man, I want to go to that party. So, yeah, that you're, you're exactly right. The, the problem is that we actually do have, you know, maybe 80%, maybe 75% of the travel volume customary for this time of year in terms of daily passenger arrivals, from what we can tell. And that's, you know, 75 or 80% of what we had two years ago in 2019, just before anybody had really heard about COVID. I mean, higher would be better from an economic standpoint. But the problem is now, with that many people, I mean, it's just network economics, right? If that many more people are interacting with the people who work in, in tourism, then there's just that much higher probability of transmission in an already higher, you know, more transmissible variant of the disease, which was highly transmissible to begin with. Kind of a recipe for disaster. I'm also looking at the supply chain issues. You know, we saw all the cancellations of flights due to the airlines can't get in a flight crew. No, that's actually, there's a paper that was written right at the beginning of the pandemic published by the New York Fed, and then it's, it's the working papers out there, entitled Pandemics Depress the Economy, Public Health Interventions Do Not. And these guys went back, trio of authors went back and looked at the 1918 influenza pandemic. And what they found was that different, they could, you could look at different cities, how different cities in America responded to the 1918-1919 influenza waves. And the cities that had the most severe lockdowns ironically, had the better economic recoveries. The intuition is that if you lock down, then you suppress economic activity. But as it turns out, if you don't, and you don't have to lock down, I'm just saying if you don't have rigorous non-pharmaceutical interventions at your disposal, or if you aren't, for example, engaging in, you know, really active guidance about social distancing and and, you know, rigorous right. mask wearing and all that other stuff. You the don't have to have a lockdown. Key. But if you don't, if you aren't rigorous about it, you're still going to have the adverse economic consequences because, right, the infection is going to, your employees aren't going to show up to work and there's your supply chain. And that's what we're looking at now over the next several weeks, is that it will become just widespread enough. 70, 80% of the population is vaccinated, but it's those last, 200,000 people on Oahu, the last quarter million people, three, you know, 275,000 people statewide who are sitting ducks for this, and they'll get sick, and they won't show up for work, and then you get an economic slowdown. So, you, you know, yeah. you get it because of the coronavirus, because of the Omicron variant, not because of, you know, some mayor saying it's time to stay home for a week. And that was Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics talking with us this morning about how this Latest COVID surge may put a damper on our economic recovery. Support for HPR comes from Ulupono Initiative, committed to a sustainable, resilient Hawaii, investing and partnering in local food production, renewable energy, clean transportation, and management of fresh water and waste. Ulupono.com.
It's the end of the year, and like other nonprofits, HPR is asking for donations. So why choose us? With public radio, you know your money makes a difference. Your support helps reporters tell the stories that need to be told. It ensures the music you rely on keeps on coming. And with four stars from Charity Navigator, you know your donation is in good hands. As we close out 2021, the choice to support HPR is a smart one. Give online, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with online and in-person courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Tuesday, January 18th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. You know, if you lost a loved one to COVID during the pandemic, you may not know that you may be eligible for financial assistance to help with funeral expenses. We talked to FEMA Public Information Officer Veronica Verde this morning. She's based out of California office, but for the last year has been working in Hawaii to help with the pandemic response. She tells us that while more than 1,000 people died from COVID here in Hawaii, less than half have applied for help. I could tell you that we have currently about 457 applications, which is uh, which is increased. We've awarded about 236 applications uh, with 1.4 million dollars out in the street for individuals. So, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought overwhelming grief to to many, and so our our mission for FEMA is to try to help ease that burden, especially the financial stress you know, caused by the virus. And this FEMA Funeral Assistance Program is under the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2021, and also the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. FEMA is providing financial assistance for COVID-19 related funeral expenses incurred on or after January 20th, 2020, which is important because, uh, you know, to, to look at, um, you know, people that could apply even back, um, you know, before uh, uh, before the funeral assistance uh, was even available. So just for individuals, you know, who unfortunately had a loss um, of a family member uh, back, uh, dated back to January 2021. Uh, one of the things that we do want to encourage um, anyone who's paid for COVID funeral or cremation expenses to contact FEMA, and you can't do it online. Um, so people have to call in. There is a phone number. Um, the, the, there is an 800 number, and that, that number is 844-684-6333. Um, we have hours of operation Monday through Friday. Um, they're 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, that's Eastern, Eastern Standard Time. Um, so when they call this dedicated toll-free number uh, to complete their COVID-19 funeral assistance application, uh, with a FEMA representative, also know that there's also multilingual services that are available. Um, also, if you use a relay service such as a video phone, um, you know, please provide the specific number assigned to you for that service. Um, and so we just want to make sure that it's accessible to anybody who needs uh, this assistance. Uh, a couple of things that, uh, you know, people have asked, um, you know, what, it, what exactly, um, you know, is covered uh, what can be covered. Um, and under uh, the COVID-19 funeral assistance expenses typically include, um, but aren't limited to the funeral services, uh, uh, cremation, transportation for up to two individuals to identify the deceased individual or transfer of remains, the casket or urn, perhaps a burial, a burial plot or cremation, the mark or headstone for clergy or efficient services, arrangement of the funeral ceremony, uh, use of the funeral home, and costs associated with producing and certifying multiple death certificates. So um, this is just a few examples of what could be covered, and is it is up to nine $9,000 eligible expense, uh, you know, for individuals uh, that may have passed away uh, due to uh, COVID-19. Um, some uh, required documents that we'll ask for is you know, the official death certificate that shows that death occurred in the United States. Also, you know, once you call after uh, you apply, you know, what happens is 
you know, the funeral assistance helpline um, is going to provide you with an application number. Uh, you'll need to include this number on any documentation you submit to FEMA. Or if you call the COVID-19 funeral assistance helpline to ask about your application, please have that application number with you. So after you apply, you call in. Within three to five uh, business days after you apply, FEMA will send you a letter with information about COVID-19 funeral assistance and the list of documents that you must submit. So you must provide a copy of the death certificate, as I mentioned earlier, uh, proof of funeral expenses incurred, and proof of funeral assistance received um, from any other source. Is there a deadline as to when uh, these funds go away? At this moment, there is no deadline, Catherine. Okay. So we want to encourage people you know, to please call in. You know, we're seeing a, a large surge you know, throughout the nation with the, the new variant. And, you know, we, we want to make sure that people are aware that, that this assistance is available to individuals and families that have unfortunately lost a loved one due to COVID-19. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, has brought, again, overwhelming grief to many, and and this is just one way to uh, try to help ease that burden. Are you surprised that the numbers are so low here in Hawaii? I mean, given that our our death count is over a thousand. Yes, we, we're seeing the increase in a lot of deaths, especially like in Hawaii, and we want to make sure that you know you know people are are aware of it. Um, you know, we're we're trying to you know reach to our partners. And, you know, thank you for uh, you know for making sure you highlight this very important um, assistance for, you know, for individuals. 457 applications, we want to see an increase, uh, especially for people that have paid, you know, out of pocket for funeral expenses. You know, please know that this is available to individuals and families. You know, please call 844-684-6333 to apply, and we will work with you and help you through the process. And do you have any info on the number of applications in places that are hard hit? You know, the, you know, like in Arkansas, where there's a large number of uh, Pacific Islanders, a disproportionate number of uh, folks there who have died of COVID. And I know those uh, community leaders were trying to get the word out to those families. In Arkansas, you know, the current numbers that we're seeing right now, the applications are a little bit over 3,800. Uh, they have been approved for about. 15, over 15 million, and we have awarded over close to 2,500, you know, applications. So definitely we're working closely with all of our partners, the, the also the, the Funeral um, Association, the Funeral Burial Association. We're trying to uh, spread the word, working with our state par- partners, our local partners, uh, working with the media, and trying to help get uh, to get the word out about the funeral assistance program. So this assistance is still available. We want people to uh, know that it's there for them to take advantage, you know, right now, because I know that financially um, it could be a big financial stress on families. um, And we want to make sure that people um, are aware uh, that they can apply by calling over the phone uh, today at 844-684-6333. Okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate you uh, making the effort to get the word out, you know, because these are untapped funds. And for folks who need the assistance during this time, they should certainly apply. Thank you, Catherine. FEMA's committed. We have a team, you know, that's been there in Hawaii through the uh, COVID response. I was also there, you know, a whole year helping with uh, operations and external affairs. And, uh, you know, the the state of Hawaii is very near and dear to my heart. and, And, you know, we want people to make sure that they apply. Um, also to, you know, look at um, getting vaccinated. Uh, that's helpful to help reduce, you know, deaths and hospitalizations. So thank you, Catherine, for highlighting this uh, very important uh, program uh, during uh, this uh, COVID response. All right. Well, stay safe and stay healthy. Aloha. Thank you, Catherine. And that was FEMA's Veronica Verde talking to us about the funeral assistance fund available for families who have lost a loved one to covid Uh, dating back to January 2020, before the vaccines were available. Look for links to the FEMA program on our website later today. Uh, Let someone who may have been affected know about this federal assistance program. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. 
Onihoa Olehua Onihau Okaua Oahu Omolokai Olanai Omau Okaholabe Ohavai Today in our Backyard Quiz, we're looking at one of the earliest attempts at biological control of an invasive species here in Hawaii. The pest was a weevil from the South Pacific that attacked sugarcane and posed a real threat to Hawaii's dominant industry in the 1860s. The search for natural enemies began when a representative of the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Experiment Station traveled to Southeast Asia in January of 1907. He found one on the island of Java the parasitic tachinid fly. That insect is known to eat 25 to 90 percent of the weevil's grubs. But scientists ran into problems importing the flies. Several attempts to ship them to Hawaii failed, and in 1910, a shipment finally survived. They were successfully breeded and distributed to plantations around the territory where they succeeded in halting the spread of the weevil. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of that invasive pest. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareetHawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check takes a sobering look at the price of insulin. Reporter Kirsten Downey joins us today. Good morning. Aloha, Catherine. So uh, tell us, how did you get onto this story? Well, I guess I've always been interested in insulin um, and the problems of diabetics. We have a family history of diabetes. And in fact, my great-grandmother died from complications of diabetes. Um, More recently, we had a young family member lose his job in the COVID crisis, and that many lost his insurance, and he really struggled in the last year and a half to to pay for his insulin. So I was paying attention to this issue um, and very interested when I saw that it started to come up before the U.S. Federal Trade Commission with diabetics really trying to draw their attention to U.S. regulators to how much insulin prices have risen, and they want some government action. Well, you know, um, I have diabetes yes. in my family, but I hadn't realized uh-huh. the prices that people are paying. Yes, it's extraordinary. The prices vary hugely depending on the kind of insurance you have, um, but there are a lot of people who have to pay more than $1,000 a month out of pocket to give themselves this life-saving medicine. And this disease uh, afflicts a large number of the Pacific Islander population, the Native Hawaiians, Samoans. Yes, um, across the board in Hawaii, at least 11% of our population is diabetic. Many more are what is considered pre-diabetic, but for Native Hawaiians, it's 14%, and the Samoans are diagnosed at a rate of 22%, so it's a very serious problem in Hawaii. And your story has some very compelling pictures. I mean, you talked to a family, uh, you know, where diabetes is uh, prevalent among the kids, and and, um, they've had to move away. Yes, um, a, a very uh, nice family, part Hawaiian. Um, the mother is Chelsea Dang. Um, the little girl and just her toddlerhood developed type 1 diabetes. Um, it was a shock to the family. Um, her, the, her insulin is very expensive. Um, coping with the high cost of housing in Hawaii and the high cost of insulin, the family recently moved to California where they get some cheaper housing. Yeah, I mean, that's just astounding to think that, you know, your whole life is uh, upended. You know, you have to move because you can't afford the drugs that you need to keep your family going. Yeah, it's been a huge skyrocketing of the prices. Um, There's a new congressional report out by the House Oversight Committee that's led by Congressman Carolyn Maloney of New York. And they reported that insulin prices have increased more than tenfold in the past 20 years. 
um, much higher than the rate of inflation. A lot of people are blaming that on the fact that there's only three companies that are the majority providers of these uh, of this essential medicine. Um, and some people are claiming that the prices have risen suspiciously in lockstep up and up and up. Well, you know, I, I've seen a lot of, uh, 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 I guess, ads on like Craigslist, you know, people looking to buy diabetes supplies, uh, which I was had my, you know, I was scratching my head about it. But, you know, when you see the prices out there, wow. Well, in the United States, our health care is tied to our employment. If you take away people's employment, like what happened during COVID, a lot of people are going to lose their health care, and the people who need insulin are going to lose access to insulin. So it's been quite a terrible thing. In fact, uh, the fatality rate among diabetics has, has jumped 15% in the past year. Well, now, I, I understand that there is some money built into that uh, Build Back Better bill um, that uh, yeah. could help families. Uh, yes, um, there's a, a very good proposal within Build Back Better that would set a price cap of $35 a month for insulin. That would be for the people who are insured or who pe- or people who are on uh, Medicare. Um, it w- probably wouldn't help people who are uninsured, but that would still be a very large swath of people that would be protected. Of course, that program has hit a roadblock because of disputes um, over the cost and uh, and the expanse of the program, um, but uh, there. Uh, but President Biden has made it very clear, and in a recent news conference, really highlighted how important it was to him that we come up with ways to give some insulin price relief. Um, Senator Joe Manchin, who's opposed the expanse of the Build Back Better Act, has said that he wants to see prescription drug relief too. And in addition, there's some action at the Federal Trade Commission in terms of them launching um, an international effort to try to find ways to set new limits on insulin prices. Um, so there's a lot of action in Washington right now um, that we can say raises hopes that we could see some relief in the not too near, in the not too distant future. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kirsten. Thank you so much. That was reporter Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. You can read the entire story online at civilbeat.org. Over 1,000 Maui families are in a better financial position to qualify for affordable housing this year. That's thanks to a program created by a partnership between Maui County, the Hawaii Community Foundation, and the Maui Financial Opportunity Center. To get a better understanding of how this program has helped those families, the Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Rhonda Alexander-Moncrest, the program manager for the Maui Financial Opportunity Center, and Michelle Kauhani, Senior Vice President for the Hawaii Community Foundation. We start with Moncrest. Can you tell me what your role was in, in this partnership? Yes, absolutely. So... Our role is to provide direct services to local residents um, to help them to get financially prepared for their goals. One of those goals is to be able to be home purchase ready. So we do that through encouraging people to sign up for services, which are free. And the services that we provide is we have a financial education workshop and we have a home buyer workshop. Um, And then after they complete the workshops, they meet with counselors one-on-one on a monthly basis or every six weeks. And we just help to assess their home buyer readiness and help them to achieve their goals. We kind of set up like a strategies and milestones along the way um, and, and just kind of check in with them to see where they're at and connect them with resources that are available. So if a person or a family comes in and they're not in the ideal place financially to purchase a home, then part of the assistance that you provide is to put them on a path to being ready. We do it together. I mean, it's, it's, it's their goal and, you know, the work does come from them, but we share examples and stories, you know, of clients who have done it um, that have may have been in similar situations and just, you know, a whole lot of encouragement, you know, buying a house and being financially ready to buy a house is, is not, filled with a lot of well-known steps for a typical resident. And so 
we are there to share. You know, here are the steps. Here's what you need to do. Here's the people that are part of your team. And, um, you know, let's acknowledge and recognize the small steps that we do take forward uh, and just keep your eye on that long-term goal. So, so I think that's, that's what our role is, is to just keep their eye on the long-term goal and help them get there. The press release that I received about this program or, or this, this effort indicated that the affordable home buying process was difficult. What are some of the difficulties that the average person would run into? I think overall, you know, the existing market makes local residents feel like they can't afford it because it's it's very expensive. And so we try to help them to focus on, let's just get you prepared so that if and when that affordable home that fits within your family's range is available, you're ready. And there, there's no reason why you would get a no. And so to be ready, it means to be credit ready. So it's to to have the right credit score, to get the best lending terms for their mortgage loan. It's to be financially ready. So to have the right uh, amount of income as well as savings for a down payment and income to qualify for uh, the loan amount, whether it be 400, 500 or 800,000 to purchase a home and to clearly understand their debt, you know, and where they're at and, and the importance of managing and living within their means. Can you share one or or two of the success stories of a person or family who are now on a solid path to housing? Is there any particular story of a family that that stands out to you that might be kind of inspiring for people who are listening? You know, I, I, I think a typical family that comes in, comes in with a lot of heart and a lot of good intentions and they have debt like any other family. So they might have two car payments, they pay rent, and then they may or may not have children that are in private school. So, you know, they're paying tuition or they're paying for activities, you know, for the kids to participate in things. And as things come up, as far as living expenses, then, you know, they may be spending without really realizing, understanding, and knowing exactly where they're at with expenses. And so that would, for me, describe a typical family, you know, that comes in. And what we help them to do is to just be much more acutely aware of exactly what is the total income you're getting per month? What is the total expenses? And how much of that are you going to put away towards savings? So we have families um, who in coming in and realizing and recognizing how important this is, have been able to save, you know, anywhere from $8,000 to $20,000. Whereas in the past, their savings might have fluctuated and stayed around a few thousand, you know, because they felt like that was enough and that was good enough as far as a cushion. And what we're seeing more and more is we're able to get families to go beyond that point, which is great. It, it, it's great for them and it's a great position for them to be in when they do go out and make an offer on a house. Some of those families participated in our match savings program. And so the match savings program where they save $1,000, they were able to get either $2,000 or $4,000 match. And it was money that they didn't have to pay back, but they put towards the down payment of their house. So we have, I think about four families who participated in that and now have signed a sales contract with the house. What does the, the ideal affordable housing market in Maui County look like? Is it homes in a subdivision? Is it townhomes or, or some sort of condo building or is it a mixture? What would your organization love to see in terms of affordable housing in Maui? I, I think it, it, a mixture is what's right because we have clients who come in at different levels and have different needs. Um, So we have some clients who are single, some who are partners, some who have children, some who have extended ohana. And so the needs for each of those different types of families is a need for the community. So I'm definitely supportive of whether it's a duplex, tiny home, adding an ohana dwelling onto an existing property, 
uh, or the single family home option, that all of those be available and that that's the approach moving forward in partnership with government, developers, and then with our, our organization. In addition to the Maui Financial Opportunity Center, the Hawaii Community Foundation played a big role in the partnership. Here's uh, HCF's M- Michelle Kauhani. What's kind of the average time that it takes to to go through this financial kind of analysis? Is it a few months? Could it be a couple of years? I think to get the analysis, it'll take, you know, a month, maybe 60 days to really work with the financial coach to understand where you are. And then depending on where you are, that process can be anywhere from a few months to a few years. And so that really depends how much debt you have to pay down, how much income you have coming into the home and, you know, what kind of subsidies you need to be successful at homeownership or at achieving a rental. I think what is what is really amazing about the services that are provided through the Financial Opportunity Center is that they really are a wraparound service provider. So they help with child tax credits, which could bring new income into a family's household. They support the tax returns during tax season that also parents need for their children to get their FAFSAs completed to attend college. They help with job placement and They have a spectrum of full service that wraps around that family so that they really don't just look at one aspect of their financial health. They're able to help coach them through many different, you know, across sectors and where that help might be needed to be successful at housing. Can you talk a little bit about the affordable housing situation on Maui? What is your organization seeing in terms of supply and demand? So I think that a lot of the burden over the last few decades has been placed on developers to provide the infrastructure that's needed to make affordable housing happen. And so when a developer is required to do, uh, for example, roads, water, sewer, in addition to building the home, they have no other option but then to um, pass that cost on to the home buyer. So essentially, We have government passing the responsibility of backbone infrastructure to home buyers, and that just doesn't work. The cost is astronomical. And so part of our strategy is that we need to return the burden of infrastructure to our government. That should not be for the homeowner or for the developer. It is a responsibility of government. That's our position. And so really trying to help advocate for the resources that the city and county needs so that we can make home homes affordable again, putting that infrastructure burden back on government. Maui has a supply and demand problem. There has been a lack of supply and therefore this pent up demand. And we see that across the state. Hawaii Community Foundation saw Maui's crisis one that was a crisis within our housing crisis for the state, because not only do they have a lack of supply, Maui sees its residents leaving and is competing with an outside market that is not here in Hawaii at a rate that's much higher than any other island in our island chain. This seems like a pretty successful effort this year on Maui. Is this a program that can be replicated on other islands as well? Or are there any plans to replicate it on other islands? Absolutely. We chose Maui to as our starting point because it was a large enough population to demonstrate what was possible, but it was small enough to try to get some traction and success. Oahu was a, a bunch to tackle. And as I said earlier, we see residents in Maui leaving at a faster rate and having a higher competition um, with outside buyers. And so it seemed like the natural place to start. We definitely hope that this model will be successful. We see components of it, whether we're intentionally doing it or not, being replicated um, on Oahu and some on Kauai. So I do think that, yes, this is a model that we could take to other islands. And the key here is the community, right? The voice of community and those who need housing the most, bringing that voice closer to the solution building. That's a critical component to this. And of course, the Financial Opportunity Center, ensuring that we have eligible renters and, and home buyers for the, pro- the units as they are constructed. And so really focusing on family needs. And, and it's very expensive, as we all know. The cost of living here in Hawaii is one of the highest in the country. And so 
really providing those support services to the families so that if they choose for Molly to be home, that we can help make that possible. That was Michelle Kahani with the Hawaii Community Foundation and Rhonda Alexander-Monkress with the Maui Financial Opportunity Center. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about a program that helped over a 1,000 Maui families navigate the affordable home buying process just this year. For more information on this program, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. HPR is seeking a creative and strategic thinker to join the team as our Director of Marketing and Communications. If you are experienced in developing marketing and brand strategies, if you have a way with words and a deep understanding of digital communications, if you're a multitasker and a people person who's passionate about public radio, then we want to hear from you. For more details and how to apply, head to hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. You know, astronomers have discovered a cornucopia of new planets, and these planets are free-floating, meaning they don't orbit a star the way Earth does. And astronomers say they're on the move. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we're thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Saturn in the western sky after sunset, where it will be visible till around 8 p.m. Jupiter will also be visible in the west until it sets at 9.30 p.m. The moon is passing through its new moon phase, which means skies will be perfect for a brand new year of stargazing. And boy, do we have an exciting topic this week. Not one rogue planet, but I am hearing a bundle of them. Yeah, indeed. An international team of astronomers, including those at the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope and the Subaru Telescope atop Mauna Kea, have discovered over 70 so-called rogue planets in a large group of hot stars called the Upper Scorpius Association. Rogue planets are free-floating planets that do not orbit any known stars. It took 20 years of observational data to confirm their existence, and it makes it the largest haul of rogue planets ever discovered. And so Explain what kind of planets they are if they don't have a star. Well, these are giant worlds, estimated to be similar in size and mass to that of our very own Jupiter. Their size also allowed us to observe them, since smaller Earth-sized worlds would have been very hard, if not impossible, to detect floating freely. I'm going to guess, Chris, that if you and I were planning a visit to one of these, we'd be bringing more than a few jackets because it'd be kind (laughs) of nippy. Absolutely. Because they do not orbit the star, they may be very, very chilly. But also, there's an interesting possibility that they may actually be able to generate heat internally. Mm -hmm. Now... They do this through a process called gravitational contraction. And this process creates massive amounts of heat in gas giants in our own solar system, like Jupiter and Saturn. Contracting planets, Chris. Is that a shrinking planet, or do we have another use of the word here? Well, yeah, they are shrinking, but ever so slightly. In fact, the contraction is almost imperceptible to us, but it releases enough energy to warm up these worlds from within. And the guess would be these planets were ejected in some form from their solar systems, and that's why they're out there? Or do you have some other nifty nifty explanation for us? No, you're pretty much on the money there. In all likelihood, these worlds were flung from their stars during the formation of their own solar systems. Or perhaps they were ejected when their solar system encountered a nearby solar system and got disrupted. It's like they were misbehaving at a club. You've seen people like that. They get thrown right out the front door. Vroom. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> 
But this makes these planets incredibly fascinating. They are truly mysterious and could teach us a lot about the evolution of our galactic neighbors. Stoked about the discovery and you sharing it with us here on Stargazer. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org and we'll catch you next week. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. In today's Beckard Quiz, we told you about an invasive weevil that threatened Hawaii's sugar crop back in the 1860s until another species was imported to combat it. The larvae of this weevil destroyed crops by tunneling into the interior of the host plant and weakening it. Dr. Muir of the Hawaii Sugar Planters Experiment Station had worked for years to find a species that would feed on the weevils that were costing plantations millions of dollars every year. The solution was to import the dechinid parasitic fly that fed on the larvae of a similar weevil in Southeast Asia. After several failed attempts to import the fly, the sugar planters finally established a breeding colony way back in 1910 and successfully distributed it throughout the territory. Today, we asked you to name the pest that spurred the introduction of the biological invasive dechinid. Uh, it was the sugarcane beetle borer, sometimes known as the New Guinea sugarcane weevil. And we had no winners today, but that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we talk to an infectious disease doctor turned author. Could a second book be in the cards? What do you think about the record COVID counts? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.